Good evening, folks, and a hearty welcome to our drive-in theater. We just want you to enjoy yourselves. A gay, pleasant evening for all. Oh, a word of caution. Mom or Pop, go with the kids when they leave the car. We hope you have a wonderful time. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome, Welcome to the Dead Zone. Welcome back, all you late-night weirdos. That's Danny over there. I'm Whitney, and this is the Dead Zone Screening Room. Hi. Hello. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm very good. Well, that's... We're, we're doing well. Yeah. <laughs> that's nice. That's lovely. Why not? Why shouldn't we? <laughs> <laughs> we should all be doing well. Hopefully. Fingers crossed. I hope you guys are doing well. And speaking of doing well, uh, well, actually, it has nothing to do with that, but I, I can't think of a segue. I, I, it's just not coming to no me. No segue for you? No segue for me. Uh, but we do have an announcement, uh, just real quick, and that's a slight change in our upload schedule. Uh, we normally try and have this up by Friday evening, uh, and now we're going to be switching to Mondays. So instead of looking for us on Friday, if you caught us on Fridays or over the weekend, we're just going to start uploading that following Monday instead. Yep, that's it. We'll still be coming here weekly. No other changes. I'm still excited. Either way, we're still getting to watch scary movies every week, and I have zero complaints about that. <laughs> it is the best thing. Well, speaking of scary movies, who we got a doozy today. Yeah, this week's movie is, it's it's a wild one. It, it is, talk about a ride. <laughs> yeah. It it uh, it takes you on quite the little roller coaster uh, that really only gets going the last 15 minutes of the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all of a sudden you're riding said roller coaster upside down. Yeah. Wondering what in the hell's going on. Uh, but we're going to try and break it all down because uh, it's a fun one. Yeah, I was so excited that we were getting to tackle this movie. We've had so many listeners ask us... Uh, to jump into this movie and yeah I, I felt I why not it's the it's a great time to be jumping into these movies and I'm super stoked because there's a few of them that we've seen and there's some quite a quite a big majority of them I feel like we haven't seen so this is giving us a, an opportunity again to jump into some new to us movies yeah and of course you're referring to we have kicked off a whole brand new series but before we get to that just to recap a few months ago, Danny and I inherited a traveling drive-in theater and were told to watch horror movies of our choosing to figure out what we want to add to the theater's vault and what to leave behind in the dead zone. The only other rule is to never be late opening the drive-in for those who are able to find us because, yeah, the theater moves around. It's never in the same place twice and it's a mystery as to where it'll show up next. But if you can use your knowledge of horror and follow the clues in each episode, you might be able to figure out where the drive-in will show up next. And this week, we are starting a brand new month-long series simply called A24, where we celebrate the production company that's brought us some of the biggest independent horror films of the last decade, proving that sometimes unique and different is scary in the best way possible. I, I'm, I'm so excited. Uh, it th- th- We've got some big names coming up. Yeah, I... Some of them, I feel like 
I've avoided for just, you know, my own uh, tastes and horror and stuff like that. But that's what I love about this podcast is that it kind of not forces me because obviously I never feel like I'm being forced to watch a movie. But it, it gives me, I guess, an excuse to put away my prejudgment. Not prejudgment, just my my own preferences, and say I'm just going to watch. I'm just going to watch this, you know, because I have to, because it's for the podcast, and to be able to not have to ma- make up a personal excuse of like, oh, I don't want to watch this because of this, or I don't want to watch this because of that, or mm-hmm. you know, it just isn't normally the genre I look for, or the type of subgenre I look for, or whatever. I don't have that excuse, and I'm so excited to get into those type of movies that. Any other time I would normally avoid just because it's not my jam, but I'm, I'm hoping we find some hidden gems. Yeah, absolutely, because I, I guess I was uh, projecting my thoughts when I said prejudgment, because that's kind of what I do. Uh, in kind of the same vein that you're talking about, I, I look at some of these movies and I think, oh, that's a period piece, so I don't want to watch it. Yeah. So I've, I've made a, a judgment that it's going to bore me or be a subject matter I'm not going to be interested in because of a certain genre. Uh, But I find, like you said, sometimes you end up finding these hidden gems uh, just because you didn't give it a chance to begin with. Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping that happens for us. Yeah. Now, of course, this movie we have seen before. Yes, obviously. If, I hope everybody has. <laughs> <laughs> I hope they have too. And if they haven't, man, there, there's a death in this movie that I think is one of the most shocking ones in cinema in quite some time. Yeah, it's... It, I literally, the first time watched it audibly out loud, said, oh my God. I, and I feel like... <laughs> I think everyone did. Yeah. It just still to this day, even though, you know, watching it, knowing it's happening, it's still shocking. Yeah. So we definitely want to give you a spoiler warning with this one, because if this is the kind of movie that you can handle, if it's if it's your kind of jam, I would definitely recommend watching it before we talk about because I don't want to spoil that moment. It really is kind of the big payoff of this movie. It's really what hooks you very quickly. So if you haven't seen this one yet and you really think you want to, I would highly recommend checking it out before you listen to us talk about it. It, it really is worth it. Yeah, of course, as always, we have to give the warning that uh, we're going to spoil it. And if it's not your jam, that's totally understandable. We're here to break everything down as always. But I think similar to, you know, like the Sixth Sense and stuff like that, there really is like these shocking moments that I feel can't always be, you know, uh, portrayed well in audio form. Uh, so, yeah, if, if you think you can get down with it, we definitely recommend watching it. We watched it on Amazon Prime. Um, I think I saw it was on Apple TV. You know, the, it wasn't anywhere streaming for free, basically, from what we saw. You had to rent it. Um, but still, we, we definitely think it's, it's worth a watch if you think you want to watch it beforehand. Now's your moment to pause because we're about to break everything down. Uh, but either way, here's your spoiler warning, because it's, it's about to get fucking crazy, guys. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I, you, I don't know if y'all are ready for this jelly. It's going to get crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, spoilers are happening now. All right, well, let's get to the wiki. Hereditary is a 2018 American supernatural psychological horror drama written and directed by Ari Aster. 
This is his feature film directorial debut. It stars Tony Collette, Alex Wolfe, Millie Shapiro, and Gabriel Byrne. Writer-director Ari Aster embarked on a career in the film industry while a student at the American Film Institute, where he scripted and directed two provocative short films, The Strange Thing About the Johnsons and Munchausen, bringing him under the radar of A24. Astor originally pitched Hereditary as a family tragedy, careful not to call it a horror film outright. A fan of domestic dramas, Astor incorporated themes of the genre into his script, envisioning a film rooted in family dynamics, trauma, and grief. He interpreted the films as two halves which are, quote, completely inextricable from each other. It begins as a family tragedy and then continues down that path, but gradually curdles into a full-bore nightmare, end quote. The film began shooting in February 2017, capturing exterior shots in and around Summit County, Utah. But in order to create the dollhouse aesthetic of the film, the majority of the interiors were built from scratch on a soundstage, allowing walls to be removed to shoot scenes at a much greater distance than a practical location would allow. Hereditary premiered at the Sundance Film Festival on January 21, 2018, and was later released nationwide in the U.S. in June of that year. It would go on to gross almost $45 million in the United States and Canada, and would end up grossing over $80 million worldwide. And that's all against a production budget of a paltry-by-movie standards $10 million. Hereditary would finish fourth at the box office its opening weekend behind some huge franchise names, including Ocean's 8, Solo, A Star Wars Story, and Deadpool 2, marking it as the best-ever opening for an A24 title. The film would continue its success throughout its box office run, and to date is still A24's highest-grossing film worldwide. On Rotten Tomatoes, the film holds an approval rating of 89%, with an average rating of 8.3 out of 10. The website's critical consensus reads, quote, Hereditary uses its classic setup as the framework for a harrowing, uncommonly unsettling horror film, whose cold touch lingers long beyond the closing credits, end quote. Writing for Rolling Stone, Peter Travers gave the film 3.5 out of 4 stars and called it the scariest movie of 2018, saying, quote, It's Colette giving the performance of her career, who takes us inside Annie's breakdown in flesh and spirit and shatters what's left of our nerves. Her tour de force bristles with provocations that for sure will keep you up at nights. But first, you'll scream your bloody head off. End quote. But of course, not everyone thought so highly of the film. Andrew Kindle of Stabroke News said, quote, The movie does terrify in moments, but its movement from humanistic horror to unusually supernatural in the last third feels unsatisfying. Audiences polled by CinemaScore gave the film an average grade of D-plus on an A-plus to F-scale. Some publications noted the critics-to-audience discrepancy, comparing it to Drive, The Witch, and It Comes at Night, all of which were critically acclaimed, but failed to impress mainstream moviegoers. 
Well, taking that and jumping into the synopsis, it is very short and sweet. It says, when the matriarch of the Graham family passes away, her daughter and grandchildren begin to unravel cryptic and increasingly terrifying secrets about their ancestry, trying to outrun the sinister fate they have inherited. All right. Are you ready to get into this one? This is... Ooh, this is crazy. Yeah, there's there's a lot to unpack with this one. Yeah, you know, I remember... It was you and me and our friend Stacy. Uh, if you listen to our other podcast, Creepy Caffeine, uh, and have heard some of our ghost investigations, you know Stacy, good friend of the pod. It always seems like when we hang out, we're either doing a ghost investigation or watching scary movies. Yeah. That's that's just kind of our, that's our thing. And it's the best. <laughs> it's the best. That's it's, why it's like, this is why you're my very best friend. It's good to have horror buddies. Yeah. We don't expect too much out of each other. Just just patience, love, and uh, mutual love of creepy things. That's all. I, I mean, it's a, a beautiful symbiotic thing, I think. Yeah. Who knew little little kids in fourth grade would be friends forever slowly just to grow up and watch horror movies and go on ghost adventures together? I think that's great. And I appreciate being able to be the third wheel. <laughs> You're not the third wheel. You are all up in it. We are all... When we were all together, there's too much laughing and tears. <laughs> That's why half the time we don't actually get to finish the movies we start, unfortunately, because we just sit there and laugh. It is a good time. It is the best. And it's it's been far too long. It has. Sad days. But we digress. And this uh, is not a sad day. <laughs> it's not. Uh, we had watched this movie together, and... I remember kind of all of our reactions to everything. Uh, and in the end, I think we all kind of had the same reaction as a lot of people, uh, which is, what the hell did we just watch? Mm-hmm. This is one of those movies that really kind of has to sit with you, and you have to think about it and really put everything together. Yeah, uh, And I think for some people... That's more than what they want out of a movie. Mm-hmm. And that's fine. You know, if you just want to go in and watch the pretty pictures and see bloody stab, stab, scary scream, run away, <laughs> that's perfectly fine. I love those movies, too. Yeah. Uh, but I also happen to enjoy these ones that really you kind of got to put some time and effort into it yeah. and, and think about it. Uh, so a lot of people had a lot of questions uh, at the end of this. We're going to try and address it the best we can. Uh, we didn't write the thing, so we're no experts, but, you know, we'll see what we can do to break it down. Yeah, why not? I, I remember whenever we uh, watched it, even, like, afterwards going home, and I was, like, Googling. I was like, somebody please explain the ending to me. <laughs> somebody in the Googleverse, please explain what's happening here. I enjoyed it, but I have no other, no idea what the fuck I just enjoyed, and that's a weird experience. So somebody please give me the deets. So now we're going to be that somebody for you. Hopefully. Probably not, but, you know. You know, it's the circle of life. That's how that works. All right, well, let's get to it. So we start off with an obituary. Uh, It's of Ellen Taper Lee. She was age 78, and she has passed away after a prolonged illness at her daughter Annie's house on April 3rd, 2018. She was the devoted mother of Annie and cherished grandmother of Peter and Charlie. We now cut to the view through the window where we can see a treehouse out in the backyard. We pull into the room as we see a housefly 
uh, come off the window sill and fly around the room. The camera then pans around to reveal a large artist studio space. This particular artist creates detailed, realistic miniatures, and the camera now pushes in on her latest work in progress, and it is a family home. We push in tighter on one of the bedrooms where it seamlessly transitions to a live action set. It is amazing. It really is a really kick-ass uh, transition, like you said. I love it. I love it so much. This whole intro is very interesting. Uh, I remember, again, the first time we were watching it, kind of like, I don't, I don't get it because I didn't really think... Th- you know, going into it, it's not touted as any sort of like doll movie or anything like that. <laughs> right. So the fact that we're opening in on this kind of doll house seems very apropos for those type of movies, you know. So I was a little bit confused. But once we realized that's just, you know, her job and in their miniatures, then I began to like really appreciate it because th- this becomes obviously uh a theme with th- throughout the movie because it's, it's what she does for her job. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're incredible. They really are. Uh, you know, the production designers had to work uh, very closely and simultaneously with the miniaturists uh, to ensure that the Graham house and the miniature house, both the set and the little miniature of it, were exactly the same. Yeah. Like if, if someone put a magazine down, there had to be a tiny magazine uh, in the same spot. So, yeah, it's it was meticulous and so well done. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, in this bedroom, we see Father Steve. Uh, not, he's not a priest. He's, <laughs> he's the dad. Papa Steve. Dad uh, Steve. <laughs> has come in to wake his son Peter up to get ready for his grandmother's funeral. He also wants to know if Peter's sister slept in her room last night. And Peter says he has no idea where she slept. So Father Steve, uh, he is played by actor Gabriel Byrne. Uh, He's most notably known, of course, for the movie The Usual Suspects. Uh, But he does have a few other creepy credits, including The Keep, Gothic, Stigmata, End of Days, and Ghost Ship. I haven't seen Ghost Ship. You know, oddly enough, I see that pop up on a lot of people's favorites lists. Mm -hmm. I feel like it's one that I somehow completely... Like, I remember whenever seeing like the advertising and everything Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I just never watched it but it's it's definitely one that I want to watch because especially recently for some reason I feel like it's been obviously whenever we're you know watching tv we also watch a lot of like horror youtube videos and stuff like that and a lot of them are like top favorites and stuff and that's been pretty prevalent lately so if yeah I feel like I want to fit it in at some point because it feels like something I need in my brain what do you guys think have you seen ghost ship (laughs) ship ship have you seen one about them ghost sheep? <laughs> That's scary. They come in and they go, <laughs> <laughs> Actually, now I want to see that movie. I really do, too. Ghost sheep. <laughs> All right, yeah. Ghost ship. Should we watch it? Not. I kind of want to watch the sheep one. But, yeah, I'm down to watch the ship. If it's good. Are there sheep on the ship? <laughs> do they drive the ship? <laughs> All right, moving on. Uh, Steve's son, Peter, is played by actor and former naked brother. (laughs) Just the former naked brother. He's just one of the former naked brothers. Always walking around naked, those brothers. (laughs) Those silly brothers. Put some pants on. (laughs) Uh, Of course, this is Alex Wolf. Uh, Supposedly, he is a huge horror movie buff, 
which is what convinced him to accept this role in the film. Oddly enough, he doesn't have too many other creepy credits. He's done My Friend Dahmer, uh, and he's in M. Night Shyamalan's latest Old. Uh, I kind of feel both of those are really what I consider borderline horror. Yeah. You know, kind of like Silence of the Lambs is horror. Yeah, like psychological horror. Yeah, 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 yeah. But also, Gabriel Byrne, who is playing his father, had played Alex Wolf's dad previously in the HBO TV show uh, In Treatment back in 2008. Uh, they joked that every seven years they're going to play father and son. <laughs> Just catch up with each yeah. other. <laughs> <laughs> they call each other. It's about that time. <laughs> I got a project. Uh, another interesting note, Alex Wolf decided to go method for this film and insisted on being referred to as Peter during the entire production. It wasn't until after filming his very last scene that he symbolically turned around and introduced himself to the crew as Alex. That's very interesting. That's some dedication. Yeah. Uh, and it, it gets a little bit more intense, uh, but we'll, we'll cross that bridge when we get to that scene. Okie dokie, I'm worried. Another little side note I wanted to slip in here, uh, because already, if you've seen this, you might have picked up on the really eerie, unusual, but really effective musical score we have here. Uh, It's very, I guess, unnerving Mm -hmm, is, mm -hmm. is the way I can describe it. So Ari Aster regularly listened to composer Colin Stetson Uh, his earlier music while he was writing the script to Hereditary. So he already had him in mind uh, when he was ready to uh, hire someone to compose the film's score. So Astor's only direction to Stetson was to make it feel evil. So Stetson has said that he found inspiration for the score through the sounds of water and animals while walking around in pitch black night. Oh, that's terrifying. Yeah. But also, that totally nails the vibes. Cause, because this, this soundtrack is just, it really is. It, it gives you, I don't know, it's not like super high intensity all the time, but it, just, it keeps you there. It keeps you on the edge of your seat the whole time. Yeah, it kind of gives you that, uh, that little uneasy quiver under the back of your neck, you mm-hmm, know, just kind of, mm-hmm. kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Well, next we see Dad Steve head outside to the treehouse, and we also see that Mom Annie is already nervously waiting out in the car. Of course, Annie is played by the amazing Tony Collette, who puts in another outstanding performance. It, it, she's incredible. It's it's literally mind blowing. I I think I even after rewatching it, I I just had to gush to you because I was like, you know, I I know that we went on and on about her performance in The Sixth Sense, but this one, I mean, it's it's just as good. It's just phenomenal. She nails the role of of a desperate mother needing answers, needing to help their child. You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's why she it reminded me so much of that performance because she, she definitely gives you that mother that's willing to do absolutely anything to keep her kids safe, but in the process, you know, can can kind of lose sight of what's right in front of her, you know. Uh, and I think that she just it's so it's so I, I she just blows my mind. 
yeah, you know, if you're a longtime listener of the pod, you know how we feel about Tony Collette around here. You know, we have stars in our eyes for her. She's just, <laughs> yeah, she's amazing. Uh, but, you know, you're not alone in, ha- in how you feel about this performance. In fact, a lot of people believe she outdid her performance from The Sixth Sense with this role and believe she got snubbed by the Academy for not getting a nomination for Best Actress here. Oh, I agree. Yeah. She just, it's incredible. Mm -hmm. Well, of course, we've mentioned her creepy credits before, but, you know, I'll share them again. Uh, She, of course, was in The Sixth Sense that we've talked about. She was in the remake of Fright Night, Krampus, and Velvet Buzzsaw. With this movie, Tony had told her agent that she didn't want to do any more heavy, dark films and only wanted to do comedies. But she loved the hereditary script so much she couldn't turn it down. In fact, both Tony and Gabriel Byrne believed in this project so much they each ended up becoming executive producers for the film. That's that's so awesome. It shows. I feel like um, that's something that I love about independent movies is you really kind of get to feel the fact that everybody was there for the passion of it, you know, and, mm-hmm. and everybody equally put in a lot of hard-ass work to make it make it work and it shows and it just is so good i'm just gonna keep saying that and you guys are gonna get sick of it but i don't care (laughs) well next we see steve pop his head into the treehouse and indeed his youngest daughter charlie did sleep in the treehouse despite the fact it was freezing last night and she could have caught pneumonia he tells her to hurry up because they're running late So Charlie is played by Millie Shapiro. Uh, She doesn't have any other creepy credits as of yet. Her career is just getting started. But did you know she is a Broadway star and the recipient of a Tony Award? Oh, wow. I don't think I knew that. Yeah. Millie, along with three other actresses, portrayed the lead role of Matilda in 2013's Matilda the Musical on Broadway. And the young quartet, ranging in ages from 9 to 11, uh, was selected to receive a special Tony honor for excellence in recognition of their performances. Oh, that's awesome. Is that not adorable? I love Matilda. So that's very cool. Yeah. Can you see Millie as Matilda? No, that's what I think is so bizarre because I just, I only see, I mean, I've seen her post hereditary like on like uh, TikTok and stuff like that. Uh But yeah, it's just, I know her now. I can't imagine this like soft, sweet Matilda character, you know? So that's, yeah, that's really interesting, but good on her. That's amazing. Yeah. It's, it's hard for those of us who, who only know her as Charlie, uh, yeah, to see that softer side. Mm-hmm. Uh, that isn't so terrifying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We'll cut to Grandma's funeral where Annie gets up to make the eulogy. She remarks how heartening it is to see so many strangers there, all to celebrate her mother's life. She says how her mother was a very secretive and private woman with private rituals and private friends, but she could also be very sweet, warm, and loving. During the eulogy, we see, thanks to an open casket, that Grandma is wearing a gold pendant necklace with a very odd design. We also can see that Annie is wearing the same necklace. Charlie goes up to pay her respects, and when she notices the necklace, 
She looks up at some dude with bleached hair, a bad spray tan, and veneered teeth, and he just grins real wide at her. Why is that just so creepy? I don't know. I don't enjoy it. I'll tell you that much. Grinning should be outlawed. We should all just frown, you know? I, I just, I can't imagine, there, there is no appropriate time just to grin. <laughs> nope, nobody normal just grins. It just is unnatural. It's creepy. <laughs> Don't grin, people. We're outlawing grinning. From here on out, no more grinning. You hear that, guys? <laughs> it's full on smile or nothing. <laughs> we don't have ass things around here. We are all in. We want to see that cutie little smile or get the hell out. <laughs> Actually, you can stay. I mean, if you want to like frown or like resting bitch face, we're fine with that too. But like, <laughs> don't make it creepy. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, we don't need the creepy grins. Yeah, I will kick your ass out. Take those home with you. <laughs> Next, we see Charlie doodling a picture loudly, which Steve makes her stop, uh, while making an odd clicking noise with her mouth. Uh, we come to learn that this is Charlie's tick. Just this repetitive noise uh, that she makes throughout the movie. Similar to The Conjuring, how they they made clapping creepy, this one easily made this like weird tongue-clicking noise terrifying. Yeah, also The Grudge. You know, The Grudge had that... Yeah, yeah. It, yeah. Ooh, nope. It doesn't take long. All it has is just like put it to some creepy music and I'm like, oh, well, I don't want to hear that sound ever again. <laughs> no, no, no. That's unsettling. Well, all this is to say that you very quickly get the sense that there is something different about Charlie. We then cut to Charlie eating a chocolate bar, and Steve comes to verify that there are no nuts in it, because Annie tells him they don't have the EpiPen. In other words, we're supposed to know that Charlie is very allergic to nuts. Back at home, Steve insists the whole family remove their shoes, which everyone does except for Annie, She's not dealing well with the loss of her mother and isn't sure if she should be sadder. Steve tells her she should feel how she feels and the grief will come in time. Next, we see Annie working in her studio, getting ready for her next exhibit, and Steve comes in to check on how she's doing. She has just six and a half months left until the show, so she's in crunch time. So basically what these little miniatures are, are they're like... Brief moments in time from her life, uh, these impactful moments. So she is an artist, and these are simply to go on display in a gallery, uh, presumably for sale. That would be the reason for that, sure. Yeah. Usually, I think so. <laughs> I mean, she got to make money, right? Everybody got to get paid. Well, next we cut to Peter's room where he's lying in bed playing his guitar as Steve comes in to check on how he's doing. If you haven't figured it out now, Dad is a psychologist, and he has to make sure everyone is feeling whatever they feel is appropriate to be feeling. <laughs> we now see Charlie's room, and it's full of all kinds of just stuff. Uh, it's hard to describe. For the most part, it looks like a, a regular little girl's room. Uh, but she has these, uh, I guess, sculptures that she has made uh, from a hodgepodge of items mm -hmm. uh, that just make them seem weird kind of like uh the sid kid from toy story you know he would take the different <laughs> parts of toys and make creepy toys mm -hmm. this is essentially what she's doing here but she's not limited to just toys uh there's other items uh we'll get to those in a bit <laughs> 
Well, Annie has come to tuck her in and seize her sketchbook and ask Charlie who she's been drawing. Charlie refuses to answer. Annie thinks it's just because she's upset over the loss of her grandmother, so she tries to reassure her by telling her that she was her grandmother's favorite. Even when Charlie was a baby, Annie's mom wouldn't let her feed Charlie because she had to feed Charlie. And by that she means she had to breastfeed Charlie. So uh, let that sink in for a second. It makes me uncomfy. Yeah, it's uh, it's a thing. Not, it's, ooh, okay. Uh, Charlie says that her grandmother wanted her to be a boy. Uh, but now that she's gone, who's going to take care of her? To which Annie is like, uh, hello. Uh, but then she <laughs> explains that if she dies, her dad and Peter will take care of her. As Annie continues to comfort Charlie, she notices one word written in pencil on Charlie's wall. Satiny. And, you know, I had to Google that. Uh, its specific meaning is pretty vague, but it appears to be part of a ritual of necromancy used to command the dead back from the spirit world. Hmm. Mm. Suspicious. Well, next we see Annie return to her studio and she starts to go through some boxes of her mom's stuff. In one box, she finds a book called Notes on Spiritualism with a note left inside of it from her mother. It says, My darling, dear, beautiful Annie, forgive me all the things I could not tell you. Please don't hate me and try not to despair your losses. You will see in the end that they were worth it. Our sacrifice will pale next to the rewards. Love, Mommy. It's a different note than I've gotten before. But, you know. My mom just put, have a good day, sweetie, in my lunchbox. You, good luck on your test. Thinking about you. <laughs> she didn't, like, threaten you with evil spirits or anything? Not once did she write, please don't hate me and try not to despair your losses. <laughs> <laughs> she was not so, so dramatic. She tried to lighten it up a bit. Sorry for shrinking your favorite pair of socks. You know, whatever. <laughs> well, all this is too much for Annie, so she turns off the light. But when she does, she looks in the corner and can see what looks like Mom standing there. Don't like it. I don't like it. It's creepy as hell, and I hate it. Yeah. But then she turns the light on, nothing there. Mm-hmm. It just, the whole thing was creepy. I hated it. It was like, oh, no, mm -mm, I don't like that. Plus, why is it always a corner and why are corners creepy? Yeah, I think we should do some more investigating about that. Like, why are corners so terrifying? Yeah. Maybe more room should be round. <laughs> <laughs> You'd get a lot of echo, but I'm down for it. Yeah. Nothing can, like, sneak up on you. Nope. No sneaking in circle rooms. That's what they say. No deep shadows. Nope. That's it. They collect all the shadows. Yeah. Shadow collectors. Bad business there. Yeah. Somebody really did not think about that when they started creating rooms and <laughs> shapes. Who went with this square business? <laughs> well, Annie is just as creeped out as the rest of us. And she goes, Mom? But there's no one there. This causes Annie to turn around and look at one of the pieces she's been working on, which depicts her sitting in bed, 
breastfeeding Charlie with mom standing next to the bed with her breast out, also waiting to breastfeed Charlie. This family is different. Yeah, different a lot. (laughs) Well, she turns the piece around and exits the room and heads off to bed. The next day, we see Charlie in school, and she's working on one of those creepy said Frankenstein toys when the teacher comes up and asks her if she finished her quiz, and Charlie says almost, and the teacher says, why don't we finish the toy after we finish our test, and Charlie agrees. But then we see a bird in the background fly into the window. The rest of the class freaks out, but Charlie remains unfazed. The rest of the class was me. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, that would be horrifying. Yeah. Especially to a class of kids just to see a kamikaze bird splat into a window. Yeah, I I would be mortified. Next, we switch to Peter in class, and we hear a teacher giving a lecture, and we can also see the words, Escaping Fate, are on the chalkboard. This is a reference to John Carpenter's original Halloween, where the same thing is being discussed when we see Lori in class before she notices Michael outside of the school. Oh, that's cool. I love when current horror gives very subtle nods to what came before. Mm -hmm. I do too. We then cut back to Charlie, who is now out on recess and has found that dead bird that flew into the window and decides to cut its head off. Uh, Not cool, Charlie. Not cool. Not Uh, very cool at all. So uh, I don't suppose uh, anyone needs to ask whether she has people playing with her. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, She's a bit of a loner. She then puts the bird head in her pocket and and turns around to notice a woman across the street staring at her, who then smiles and waves. Hello. Nope, don't like it. <laughs> well, next we are back to Annie, who is in her studio working, and we hear Steve come home. She goes downstairs to greet him, but she's distracted by the open door to her mother's old room. She goes to look inside, and we can see what appears to be a triangle burned onto the wooden floor. But apparently this is normal, so Annie just shuts the door and goes downstairs. She asks if Steve had opened the door, which he replies no, so he goes upstairs and locks it so it doesn't get opened anymore. Peter comes in and hands the phone to Steve and tells him it's someone from the cemetery calling. Steve takes the call and turns out someone has desecrated Grandma's grave, even though she's only been buried a week. He gets off the phone and Annie has come in, but he just tells her it had something to do with billing. Uh, Of course, he can't bring himself to explain that uh, her mother's grave has been desecrated. So she just accepts that explanation and uh, says she's going out to a movie. But then we see Annie hasn't actually gone to a movie She's really secretly attending a support group for people who have lost loved ones. She explains that she's been to groups like this before, and she's decided to give it a try again now that her mother has passed away. She said she loved her mother, but they were estranged, so the loss wasn't that hard on her. And she also recognizes that her mother had a hard life, and she suffered from DID, which is Dissociative Identity Disorder, and in her later years had suffered from dementia. 
Her father died when she was a baby, claiming he had schizophrenic depression and starved himself to death. And then her brother committed suicide at the age of 16 because he was also schizophrenic and believed that their mother was putting people inside of him. So she's had a rough life. Annie's been going through it and she needs a little support. So she goes on to explain how her mother moved into their house before going into hospice care, even though they weren't even speaking at the time. Eventually, her husband Steve had to put a no-contact rule in, and they all pretty much stuck to it until Annie's second child, Charlie, was born, and Mom immediately stuck her claws in, and Charlie became quote-unquote hers. It's most evident here that Annie carries tremendous guilt for her lack of empathy toward her mother. Yeah, you can tell poor Annie. I mean, she's at this meeting. This is like, you know, they do the whole, does anybody have anything to say or introduce yourselves? And this is her whole like, hi, I'm Annie, her whole like introduction story. And you can just tell, I mean, she's been through some shit and been through a lot. And yeah, there's there's that uh, guilt that she's carrying, but also definitely that... Um, separation you know from from the grief I think still mm -hmm. um as she's telling the story and so again it, I think it's just kudos to Tony Collette and, and her abilities because she she does it so well and throughout this whole thing you know she's giving this whole speech um and, and she just nails it you know she it completely portrays that feeling of exasperation but also exhaustion exasperation as mm -hmm. far as like dealing with all that yeah and current exhaustion was just like, what the fuck do I do now? You know, like she's passed away and I don't, I don't really know what to do, you mm -hmm. know? So yeah. And, and every, you know, the camera kind of pans back to their group and they're just kind of like sitting there blinking their eyes like, hi Annie. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really good, I, I, I like that this is how we're introduced to her past that it's done in, in such an, um, short and easy manner because this movie can be kind of a slow burn in a lot of places and I feel like if we would have had to take time to explore that past to understand how we got to where we are today in the movie mm -hmm. I feel like that could have lost a little bit but I, I like the fact that we were just kind of thrown into it and given that story right off the bat too right yeah we need to understand this character has been through long-term suffering mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so when things get worse it seems so much worse. Yeah. And we, it definitely explains uh, kind of the loss of sanity as the movie goes on. Mm -hmm. Well, next we are back at the house and Peter is in his room smoking the devil's lettuce. Uh-oh. Uh, he gets a text message telling him there's a huge party that night and that he should bring his dick. <laughs> <laughs> bring your dick. I mean, I didn't know that that was an option for the boys. I didn't. I thought that was a went everywhere. <laughs> well, last week it was you know a bring your own goat party. <laughs> this one's a bring your own dick party. So you know, or not, it's yeah, optional. I, I like that they give you that option. Sometimes you just don't want to carry it around. Yeah, I'm assuming absolutely. So, well, next we see Charlie in her bedroom making her clicking noises and working on her Frankenstein toys that she's going to glue the head of the bird on 
that she gathered earlier. When a strange light starts reflecting around the room, drawing her attention to her bedroom window, which she goes over to look out of. Downstairs, we see that Annie is preparing dinner and she gets an email which she checks and it's the gallery asking about the progress on the work she's doing and if they can get some pictures of what she's done so far. We now get back to Charlie, who's now outside and walking with that damn bird head. Uh, where she's going, we have no idea. Uh, we then cut back to Annie, who's back in her studio working on another piece. This one appears to be a scene of the art gallery where she will be displaying all of her pieces. So it's a very inception moment. She's going to have a gallery within a miniature gallery that's in the bigger gallery. It's, it's a lot. It is. kind of hurts to think about it. <laughs> well, Peter comes in and asks if it's okay if he borrows one of the cars so he can go to that party. Annie asks if they'll be drinking, which of course he says no. And then she asks if he's going to take his sister. Exactly what every teenage boy wants to do is take their younger, weird little sister to a high school party. <laughs> we now cut back to Charlie, who's still walking around outside and now sees some old woman sitting in the woods behind their house, surrounded by fire. And then Annie comes running outside and gets Charlie scolding her, saying, What are you thinking coming outside with no shoes on? Uh, no mention of said woman with fire. Uh, so I have no idea if this was an apparition of Charlie's or if Annie just didn't notice. I don't know how you miss a woman surrounded by fire. <laughs> Either way, it's like not something I want to see when I, you know, I'm walking out in my backyard. It, probably not. It's private property. Please just take your fire and go. <laughs> take your ring of fire somewhere else, please. <laughs> Well, Charlie is upset by Annie's scolding and says that she just wants Grandma. Well, this pisses Annie off, and now she insists that Charlie go to the party with Peter because that's what we should do with socially awkward children is force them into situations that will make them more uncomfortable. Fun, fun. Yay, teenage years. <laughs> Next, we see Peter driving Charlie to the party, Charlie is in the back seat making her clicking noises, neither one of them speaking to each other. So, interesting side note here, Alex Wolf, uh, of course, who plays Peter, and Millie Shapiro, who plays Charlie, both attended professional children's school and already knew each other prior to filming, but in order to capture the strained and complicated relationship between the characters, Ari Aster requested that Alex and Millie go out to eat a few times together in character, during which time they would sit for up to like three hours in silence while Millie wouldn't speak and Alex would repeatedly try to get her to talk. Uh, they also had to go out in character and buy Millie a sweatshirt and Alex had to figure out what kind of sweatshirt she wanted without her telling him what kind of sweatshirt she wanted. That's so wild. Yeah, it just kind of those things that you go through just to really feel what that is like and he can understand the frustration of mm -hmm. it and, and her as well, not, not being able to fully communicate your needs. Yeah. You know, so 
Yeah, that's a really interesting exercise. And I suppose there would be a little extra dynamic to it by doing that out in public. Oh, for sure. Yeah. It's one thing to do it as your job in front of, you know, other cast and crew. That's what you're used to. So, yeah, just to be very vulnerable out in public to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that would be, ooh, that'd be, that makes me nervous. <laughs> I don't want to do it. I have severe stage fright, so there's, I just doing stuff like that just makes my heart flutter. I'm very sweaty thinking about it. <laughs> well, back to their trip to the party. They pass a telephone pole that we stop and look at for a little longer than necessary. So you know that means the director is trying to tell you to notice something here. And if you look very closely, there is a symbol carved into the telephone pole, and it just so happens to be the same symbol on the necklaces worn by Annie and her mother. Hmm, that's Hmm. weird. Suspicious. Well, the kids arrive at the party, and we know it's a party because there are many teenage children's lots of drinking and very loud musics. So many musics, so many teenagers, it's just, it seems like there's, this is an accident waiting to happen. (laughs) Something's going to get broken. Uh, We can also see people are in the kitchen baking, uh, because that's what I did at all my high school parties. Oh, for sure. So much bakings. So many pies, so many cakes. I was like, party at my house, everybody bring your own dough. (laughs) But then I sent that text to Peter and I was like, bring that dick, you know what I mean? (laughs) I knew what I was in for. (laughs) The goats came in later, I assume? Oh, for sure. All right, all right. We all had to bake the curse cake together. (laughs) That's right. You gotta get the eyeballs in. (laughs) Well, next we see Peter find the girl he has a crush on. And asks if she wants to smoke because he has some killer weed, dude. Is that a weed? (laughs) Well, Peter asks Charlie to stay put, but she doesn't want to. But he sees they're giving out that cake they were baking. Again, weird. And tells Charlie, look, they're giving out free cake. Better go get you some before they run out. Uh, And he takes off to go smoke some Maui Waui. (laughs) <laughs> we see Charlie eat the cake, but as she's eating, you can tell she thinks something's not right with the cake. Uh, but she keeps eating it. It's not enough to make her stop. Cake must be good. Damn good cake. Everybody knows party cake's the best <laughs> cake. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, back in the smoke room, Peter is blizzing up with his friends. But back downstairs, Charlie has finished her cake and is now making another Frankenstein toy out of an Altoids tin. But we can also hear that she's wheezing. So she goes in to get Peter and tells him that it's hard to breathe and she thinks her throat is getting bigger. This scene is like so stressful. Oh my god. I was like, immediately when... Well, of course, I, I, I didn't even say it. They foreshadow the moment because when you see their baking at this party, which is just bizarre, uh, we see someone chopping up nuts. Yeah. So most people pick it up right there. You're like, okay, we see it coming. Somehow Charlie's eating a nut. Uh-oh, nut cake. Nut cake. <laughs> it's a whole different kind of curse cake because <laughs> Charlie cannot breathe. <laughs> Also, this is why we don't make cakes of party people nuts kill. They really do. Don't have stranger party cake. 
Everybody knows that. You don't know what's going in that. You don't know whose nuts those are. <laughs> exactly. Can't control the nuts going in that cake. So, <laughs> no, don't partake. <laughs> when there is no nut control, you stand clear. <sighs> Words to live by. <laughs> well, Peter throws Charlie in the back of the car and takes off speeding toward the hospital. She is gasping and clawing at her throat, trying to breathe. Her feet are kicking at the door, and she is struggling. Peter is approaching speeds of 80 miles an hour, trying to get his sister help. She is clawing and scratching at her throat, still desperate for air. She rolls down the window, hoping the fresh air will give her some relief. She hangs her head out, gasping to fill her lungs, but just then... A dead deer can be seen in the road, and Peter has to swerve to miss it. And when he does, he slams Charlie's head into that same telephone pole we saw earlier, instantly decapitating Charlie and killing her, her body still laying on the back seat. It's shocking. The car comes to a screeching halt as we all sit motionless in stunned silence with Peter for a whole minute and 21 seconds. I mean, nobody moves. Peter is in shock. The audience is in shock. It is one of the biggest what-the-fuck moments, probably in movie history. Yeah, it, it, I, I'm actually so glad that they took that pause because I needed that pause too. Well, Peter cannot bring himself to even look in the back seat, so he just resolves himself to drive home, which he does. He pulls into the drive and simply goes inside and goes to bed, leaving Charlie's dead body in the car. The next morning, we see Peter is awake, but simply just lying in bed. We continue holding the shot of just his expressionless face as, from off in the distance, we can hear Annie downstairs tell Steve that she's going out to get some supplies and will be back in about 20 minutes. At, at this point, the audience is just going, oh my God, oh my God, yes. oh my God. We hear her open the car door and immediately react with a gut-wrenching scream when she discovers Charlie's body in the back seat. As she continues screaming, we cut to a shot of Charlie's decapitated, bloodied head covered in flies on the side of the road. It, it's kind of a shocking moment because mm -hmm. it just, it like flashes in there out yeah. of nowhere. You're like, oh my God. Yeah. And it, it is realistic. Mm -hmm. Mad props to the props. It's <laughs> incredible. Mad props to the props. Well, uh, let's back up and talk a little bit about what has happened here. Uh, this was such a shocking moment. I remember all three of us, uh, you, Stacy, and I, just <laughs> like you said, we're just like, oh my God, and just could not believe what we just saw. And, and I think that's a lot of people's reaction because... Hereditary's advertising campaign, uh, it was really meant kind of like uh, smoke and mirrors. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it was specifically to keep this death a secret from the viewers, yeah. notably by showing Millie Shapiro prominently in the trailer, even though Charlie is alive for only one quarter of the film. 
this deliberately misled everyone to believe that she was the star of this movie Mm -hmm. and that this was going to be about her throughout the the whole film, which I, I guess in a way it still kind of is. But just for her death to come so quickly at the beginning, you know, it's really similar to Psycho, where Janet Lee was made to look like the star of the film, only to be murdered a third of the way through it. Mm -hmm. Uh, This moment was also Millie's most memorable moment from filming because she got to do her own stunt here. She was tethered to the car going 30 miles an hour while she was hanging out of it. Uh, she said it felt like she was on a roller coaster. Well, that's fun. Uh, except that first hill is a doozy. <laughs> <laughs> well, Steve Newburn and his special effects team also built an animatronic puppet of Charlie for her decapitation by the telephone pole. This scene led to the makeup team's biggest challenge on the show. Originally, the car Charlie rode in was meant to be mounted on a track that would lead it and the animatronic puppet into the telephone pole. But changes meant that the effect had to be performed by a fully operational vehicle driving at 60 miles an hour. For the gag, a collapsible inner skull was built into the puppet. This skull was meant to mirror the damage created on another Charlie. That's the head we see as the aftermath of the accident. Uh, Tests were carried out in the makeup shop using a baseball bat to simulate the telephone pole's impact. Even without the planned track guiding the car, the effect went off perfectly. However, they only ended up using a few frames of the stunt because it ended up looking too disturbing. Oh, wow. <laughs> I don't tell anybody. I kind of want to see the footage, right? I know. I'm like, well, it was already disturbing. So <laughs> we are already disturbed. <laughs> yeah. Might as well just lay it all down. <laughs> don't tease me. Well, believe it or not, I'm not done with the facts. And this one is gonna blow your mind i'm so excited are you ready i am this whole scene is based on a real life incident (gasps) from 2004 in marietta georgia (gasps) in which john kemper hutchardson accidentally decapitated his childhood friend and passenger frankie brahm on a telephone pole after the latter had leaned his head from the vehicle to relieve the symptoms of his inebriation. Hutcherson then drove home with Brahm's headless corpse in the car and fell asleep until a passerby, walking with his toddler, noticed Brahm's body still in the truck the next morning and notified authorities. Oh my gosh. Can you believe that? No. That's horrifying. Can you imagine being that person walking your dog? Toddler. 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 (laughs) Worse, it was a small child. The dog wouldn't have cared. That is worse. (laughs) Oh, I wasn't even worried about the other person caring. I was worried about me. (laughs) Toddler, yeah, they're going to be scarred for sure, but also me. (laughs) I forgot about every other party involved. I was like, oh my God, can you imagine? I would be traumatized. That is wild. Yeah, I had no idea. I can't. Uh, I think, in, I mean, the whole thing's fucking disturbing. But I think, and it's it's the thing that creeps me out in the movie as well, 
is the driving home part because it's like can I just I don't it gives me goosebumps just thinking about it I I think he has to just be in shock it's like I don't know what to do I don't know what to do yeah the only thing I know to do is mom and dad will fix the situation that's what they've always done Uh I'll just go home and so he does I just I just feel like I, I I don't know I mean, yeah, I don't know what you do. I don't know what you do in that situation. I don't have an answer. But it's that whole thought process of just driving home and there's this headless body in your backseat. Ugh. Yeah, I I couldn't do it. I, no. I think I just would have sat down on the side of the road and just, I, I'm, I'm finished. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. I have goosebumps. Creepy. Oh, okay. Well, back in the family home, Annie is inconsolable and is screaming and crying for a full minute straight as the camera pans over out of the parents' bedroom into the hall where we see Peter just standing there like a creep. <laughs> <laughs> He's just standing there in the hallway. Next, we cut to a cemetery and Charlie's funeral where Annie is still crying as the casket is lowered into the ground, as is the camera, and it pans down with it. Next, we see they're having a wake back at the house, and after everyone leaves, Steve goes up to check on Annie, who has been lying on the bed upstairs, and we see the word Zazas scratched into the wallpaper. Of course, I had to look this one up too, The best I can tell is it has something to do with Aleister Crowley and trying to invoke a demon named Charonzon. I don't know. It sounds more like a transformer to me. (laughs) Anywho, in order to summon this guy, you have to use the mantra Zazas, Zazas, Nastadanda, Zazas. It's gibberish. Apparently, it was also used on an X-Files episode titled Terms of Endearment about a demon trying to create his own offspring. It didn't go well for said demon, uh, so Zazas no help. (laughs) So we have this first word, which means summoning a demon, and now we have this one, which has to do with, like, creating a demon offspring. Hmm, so are we kind of starting to put some things together, maybe? Hmm... All I can say is everything thus far is very terrifying and I shouldn't have kids ever. (laughs) Kids are scary. (laughs) Well, next we see Peter get into bed and stare out the window, which looks right onto Charlie's treehouse. Within, we see a red light come on inside. We then cut to Father Steve as he's sitting on the bed in Charlie's room looking through some of her drawings. Out in the treehouse, we discover the red light is caused by a heat lamp as we discover Annie has decided to sleep in there for the night. The next day, Peter is back in school looking really rough. I mean, take a day off, dude. Yeah, give yourself a week or something. You need to process some stuff, buddy. Yeah. Well, later we see him under the bleachers with three other boys and Peter starts to have trouble breathing. He thinks he's having a reaction to the marijuana, but it turns out he's just having a panic attack. Later that night, he returns home, but is having a hard time making himself go inside. But the whole time he's just standing outside, we can see Mom is sitting in her car. It's not running or anything. She's just sitting there in the driveway in the dark. Creepy. Creepy. 
Once Peter finally works up the gumption to go inside, Annie starts up the car and drives away. Annie has decided to attend another one of her support groups, but now can't seem to make herself go inside. So she decides to drive off, but before she can drive away, she's flagged down by a woman in the parking lot. This is Joan, and she recognizes Annie from when she was there a few months ago after her mother passed. Annie explains how it's her daughter who has died this time, and Joan expresses her concern and then tells Annie how she lost her son and grandson a few months ago. This seems to somewhat bond the two together, and Joan tells Annie that if she ever needs someone to talk to, that she's there for her, and she gives Annie her information. Annie arrives back home, and her and Steve go off to bed. He reaches out to comfort her, but she pulls away and gets up. She grabs a blanket off the chair and says she'll be right back, but he says, no, you won't. He says it gets awful cold up there, to which she replies that she has the heaters and she just needs to get some sleep. So Annie goes off to the treehouse to sleep again. Next we see Peter in bed and he thinks he can hear Charlie's clicking noises in his room. He looks panicked into every corner, thinking every pile of dirty clothes is her, but there's no one there. The next day, Annie is working in her studio again. This time, it's a miniature of Charlie's bedroom. We see that she's painstakingly writing as small as she can that same word, satiny, on the wall, just as she had seen it in Charlie's room before. She glances over at a post-it note reminding her to call the gallery and ask for an extension. Obviously, all this family tragedy has put her behind in her work, but when she goes over to grab the post-it, she knocks over some paint and spills it onto a piece of paper. This just so happens to be the note with Joan's information, so she decides to pay her a visit. And Joan has a lovely needlepoint personalized welcome mat. What a perfectly lovely woman. <laughs> There's nothing weird here at all. No, not at all. No need to be suspicious. <laughs> Everything's totally normal here. There are no arterial motives. <laughs> I think I said arterial. Isn't that part of your heart? I think so. <laughs> There's none of those either. Well, Annie comments on the welcome mat and says that her mom used to make ones just like it. Isn't that funny? Automatically, we're back to suspicious, and I don't know where we took this turn. We just said everything was normal. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, they're quite ornate. I, I Why would you want someone to wipe their feet on that? Also, I don't want my name on my welcome mat. Yeah, no, no bueno. I don't need somebody walking to my door saying my name and me being like, uh, hold up, I don't know you, how do you know me? And us having this whole conversation and it's awkward, or they're just being creepy and now they know my name and they shouldn't know my name, you know? I, I get it. You're, you're preaching to the choir. I'm just saying there's a lot of variables and I think it's better safe than sorry. Put somebody else's name, you know? Do I look like a Frank? No, but I'm going to put Frank on my doormat. I, I mean, go big, go mad dog. <laughs> Killer. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Fuck off. How about that? <laughs> That's, I, I like that one, please. In, in blue. In blue, please. <laughs> Well, Annie relives for Joan how she discovered Charlie's body. 
and it's heartbreaking and Tony Collette is amazing. Uh, we see that Annie is now taking prescription medication to help cope and takes it with a swig of the tea Joan has given her. Joan looks very interested in watching Annie take her medicine, but Annie just swallows it down, but then grimaces and brings her fingers to her lips, pulling out a piece of loose tea. But then, you know, Joan kind of gives that look again, like, uh, okay, good. You know, so it's like, what was in that tea? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Joan then asks how Annie's relationship with Peter is. Annie goes into another story about how she sleepwalks at night. She hasn't done it in a couple of years, but one night she woke up to find both Peter and Charlie covered in paint thinner. She was also covered in paint thinner and was standing in front of them holding a box of matches and an empty can of paint thinner. Annie actually woke herself up striking the match, which was also when Peter woke up and he started screaming. She tried to explain that it was just an episode of sleepwalking and she absolutely had no intention of hurting either of them, but he could not be convinced otherwise that she was not trying to harm them. Uh, So there's some trust issues there. Well, it sounds terrifying. I mean, I know that's, yeah, she's sleepwalking. That was the sleepwalking episode. But yeah, that would be fucking scary to wake up to. That would be fucking scary to sleepwalk and do, too, as well. <laughs> yeah. Especially if you're trying to convince someone that you're not trying to hurt them. Yeah, for sure. Well, back at the family home, Steve comes in to check on Annie, who's working in her studio again. And she is making a miniature of the accident scene. Uh, with a tiny little decapitated head and everything. Steve asks, you're not going to let Peter see that, are you? To which Annie answers, what's wrong with it? It's not about him. It's a completely neutral view of the accident. You know, everyone deals with grief in their own way. Um, I don't, I, perhaps this is healthy. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. It seems a little inappropriate. At least it's too soon. Yeah, it feels like something I don't want to sh- want to relive and like yeah. stare at every day. Yeah, that's doesn't seem like a good time. Well, down at dinner, everything is awkward. Peter asks Annie if she has something on her mind that she wants to say. Annie tells him, "Why would I want to say anything? So you can sneer at me." Well, this is fighting words to a teenager, and that's what happens—a fight. But mostly, it's just Annie blowing up at Peter, telling him how she can't stand when his face is on his face. She says she's sorry his sister is dead and that he's sad about it, and she knows it was an accident and wishes she could change the fact that he was the one that killed her, but she can't. And what a waste her death was, if at least it could have brought them closer together but Peter has never said he was sorry or taken any responsibility, and now everything just fucking sucks. Uh, Of course, I'm paraphrasing, and Tony Collette does this scene way better than than anything I could come close to. Uh, But yeah, it's uh, it's pretty powerful. Yeah, this scene is... is, I, I, you know, we watched it all together, and then uh, whenever we watched it for this uh, episode, I was sitting there watching it and I literally just found myself just sitting back in awe of this scene in her speech and the in the way she she delivered it it was just so well done and I think this was the scene that I was just like damn 
she did it again. She fucking did it again. She just nails it every time. And this this scene in particular, we, we really kind of begin to see the breakdown of the family um, through through the words exchanged and obvious and stuff like that. But I, I think we also kind of get to peek into how um, fragile Annie is right now and, and really how it, 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 it doesn't take much to kind of send her off. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it's, it's definitely a broken dynamic. You can tell just by the, the filming of the scene, it's very dark in the rest of the house. We just have the lights on above the table and it's very dim and, and it's quiet. It's just, it, it, it really portrays this kind of haunting family scene where you can see that they're not, they're no longer a whole family. Yeah. It, and and just what a horrible position for all of them to be in mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. to be the son and to feel responsible i mean technically yes he's responsible but it, it was an accident yeah, yeah. he certainly didn't set out for any of that to happen I and mean, he was trying to save her mm-hmm. but also on the parent side here's your son who is in pain and agony but yet with the loss of your child under his care, then there's that that pain and that struggle that you want to blame someone for her death. Yeah, yeah. But yet this is your son. Mm-hmm. It's just, what a horrible, horrible situation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it sucks whenever you guys can't side together and have a, a, a mutual enemy. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It sucks when it's within that family dynamic. Yeah, it's just, it, it really... It sucks, again, because it's one of those, you understand both sides, mm-hmm. you know, and, and the struggles between both sides. And so, yeah, you definitely kind of have to remain neutral as we're watching these scenes unfold because it's it's hard to say how you'd react in these situations. I mean, probably I don't think I would go to the extremes uh, that happen in this movie, I will go ahead and say. <laughs> but definitely, yeah, it's tough to say what you would do. It just, it's so heart-wrenching to think about. Yeah, it's kind of funny that you use the phrasing, you know, see it from both sides. I think there's a lot of that within this movie, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, particularly between this relationship between Peter and his mother. Yeah. Uh, You know, being able to see each other's story from the other side Mm -hmm. to, to see what they're going through. Uh, and, uh, I, I think that's a big kind of theme throughout this. Yeah, absolutely. Well, after Annie's little tirade, Peter says to Annie, what about you, mom? She didn't want to go to that party in the first place. So what was she doing there? Steve finally jumps in and immediately puts a stop to it. Uh, you know, that's enough. This is over. Uh, but Annie gets up and leaves the table. The next day we see Annie has gone to the store to get more supplies and just so happens to run into Joan again, who is loading things in the back of her car. She tells Annie she's had a life-changing experience where she met a psychic medium and attended a seance. Annie thinks it's all a bunch of crap, but then Joan explains how the medium came to her apartment and contacted her dead grandson. She swears it was real and really wants Annie to come over and experience it for herself. Back at Joan's apartment, her and Annie sit at a table and Joan lights a candle. 
She puts her hand on an overturned glass and asks Annie to do the same. Joan calls out for her grandson and asks him to move the glass. Annie starts to get nervous and can almost sense someone else is in the room. Joan continues to ask her grandson to move the glass until he finally does. This, of course, freaks Annie out, and she demands to know how Joan did it. Annie checks under the table, but nothing is there. The glass now starts to move on its own, and something flips Annie's hair, making her jump and scream. Joan then pulls out a chalkboard and asks her grandson to write something for them. We then see the chalk on the board start to move on its own and spell out, I love you, Grandma. So, for this scene, Ari Aster wanted any effect that could be done practically to be done that way instead of in post-production. Uh, a man after my own heart. <laughs> uh, and so, to make the chalkboard write on itself, the special effects team inserted a magnet into the chalk and then used another magnet on the other side of the chalkboard to make the chalk move. That's really cool. It seems so simple. It does, but I love the fact that they took the extra step to do that. Absolutely. Well, all of this is just too much for Annie, and she asks if they can stop. Annie really wants to leave, so Joan tells her it's fine if she wants to leave. She had the same reaction the first time she did it. But before she goes, Joan wants to give her some supplies and the ability to do this freaky crap on her own. So she gives her a candle and a piece of paper because, you know, those are things you don't have at home uh, <laughs> and tells her you're going to have to use something that belongs to Charlie, something that was personal to her. Then you're going to read these words, every syllable out loud and gives her this little pamphlet thing. And remember, in order for it to work, everyone needs to be in the house, your son, everyone. It's very important. Something tells me there's something else going on here. Mm -hmm. Well, we see Annie driving home crying when all of a sudden she hears one of Charlie's clicking noises come from the back seat. It scares the hell out of her and me. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> that one got me. It was very loud. Well, that night we see Annie in bed, unable to sleep, when she notices ants crawling all over her bed and the wall in her room. She gets up and follows the trail of them down the hall to Peter's room, where she slowly approaches his bed with mouth agape. As we see what she is finally seeing, Peter is completely covered in ants, and they are eating away at his flesh, including his eyeballs. Uh, his eye sockets are just a pool of ants. It is, it is a horrifying image. Yeah, it's, I I think it's one of those that, like, the first time I watched it, I was like, oh, this is terrifying. And then I, as I was watching it again, I was, like, intrigued, you know? I had to sit there and continue watching it when yeah. I should be, like, grossed out looking away. But I'm like, I just, I can't look away. It's, it's so interesting. <laughs> it's fascinating. <laughs> well, she continues to look unhorrified in a silent scream when we hear Peter say, Mom? What are you doing? Well, Annie snaps out of it and realizes she was sleepwalking again. She then asks if Charlie is there. Peter replies with another question. Why are you scared of me? Annie immediately blurts out, I never wanted to be your mother. And then immediately 
brings her hands to her mouth, not knowing why she would say such a thing out loud. Peter asks her why, and she explains that she was scared. She didn't feel like a mother, but her mother pressured her to have kids. He asks then, why did you have me? To which she replies, it wasn't my fault. I tried to stop it. Ouch. Yeah. Oh, that is rough. She said she tried everything she could to have a miscarriage, but nothing worked. And she's glad it didn't work. She truly loves him. But he starts crying and screaming that she tried to kill him. And she's all, no, I tried to save you. And then all of a sudden, they're both all wet. And Annie lights a match, setting Peter ablaze off screen, waking Annie up in the process. And this was just another dream. The scene is so good because I the seamless transition to Annie being or both of them being completely like covered in liquid and then just you know lighting the match and everything they're just sitting and they're talking back and forth and then all of a sudden it just kind of goes into this manic moment of okay we're about to you know set the scene on fire basically it's just so well done again it's just so subtle but also so aggressive at the same time i don't know there's it's just so well done yeah and and of course the performances here are stellar too Mm, absolutely uh tony and alex did a phenomenal job i i am not (laughs) an actress by any means so i'm certainly not giving you anywhere near the uh the emotion that was involved here i mean there are tears and it's shouting and and obviously this is a very painful conversation for both of them Mm -hmm. and it feels very raw and real and just you know so heartbreaking to hear these words coming from a mother but realizing it's it's such a, a a truthful and honest moment yeah so It's just a really, really powerful moment. And then, yeah, to all of a sudden be like, oh, what the hell? He's on fire. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And and then to, you know, have that relief of, oh, shit, just another. Yeah. (laughs) It's another dream. Okay, fine. You know, it's it's a good scene. It really is. Well, somehow this makes Annie want to do the seance ritual in the bathroom. We then see her wake the whole family up and bring them downstairs to do the ritual with her. Obviously, something happened in that time that she was doing the ritual by herself. She has the candle and a glass on the table, and after much convincing and physically moving them herself, she gets her family to join hands. The room goes quiet, and Annie asks if Charlie is with them. Peter thinks he can hear creaking in the corner, but no one seems to be there. Next, the glass takes off and moves halfway across the table on its own. Annie then grabs Charlie's notebook and asks her to draw something on the paper. But now Peter is starting to freak out and Steve is demanding that she stop. But she insists it's perfectly fine and this is his sister and she would never hurt him. But then the glass cabinet behind them gets shattered and he asks Charlie what's wrong and the unlit candle on the table shoots a quick burst of flame up into the air, making everyone jump back. The candle then lights up on its own and stays lit. Annie then starts growling and then appears to be channeling Charlie, who keeps asking for her mom and why everyone is scared. She keeps screaming as Charlie calling out for Peter, which just freaks Peter out more, and he begs her to stop. 
Finally, Steve throws water on Annie, snapping her out of her trance. This this is an uh, another intense moment. It all seems to happen very quickly, uh, but it gets freaky. It gets freaky very fast, mm-hmm. uh, and all of a sudden we're in like poltergeist mode. Yeah, and it's it's uh, things are ramping up very quickly. Yes. <laughs> well, we see some more shots of Annie's miniatures upstairs, and then we see the words "Liftoch Pandemonium" scratched into another wall. Pandemonium is, of course, a word we all recognize, meaning like chaos. However, the word originates with Milton's Paradise Lost as the place that Lucifer creates for those who fall from grace with him. And Liftoch, on its own, appears to be Hebrew, meaning to open or unlock. So basically, this means open up for the demons. No, thank you. Door closed. (laughs) (laughs) No, I keep locked. Uh, No one here. (laughs) Do you see welcome Matt with name? No. Leave, please. Thank you. No soliciting. I uh, don't need magazine. (laughs) I I already have Hell Weekly. (laughs) Thank you. Goodbye. (laughs) Well, the next day at school, Peter is distracted by a reflection of light. Remember when Charlie experienced the same thing in her room? Well, this time it leads Peter to look at his reflection in some glass cabinets in his classroom. But his reflection does not match his own. His reflection is grinning, while Peter himself is not. What do we say about grinning? I thought we laid out this rule perfectly fine. And here we are doing it again. Hmm. I hate when people don't listen. Hmm. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, then Peter thinks he hears one of Charlie's clicks, which makes Peter jump up from his seat, disrupting the class. But he just plays it off like he needs to go to the bathroom. Back at the family home, the phone rings and Annie answers. It's Stephen, and he's pissed because Peter just called him crying from school because he believes a vengeful spirit is after him. Basically, Peter thinks Charlie is mad that he killed her, and she's now after him and trying to hurt him. All this checks out. I would be scared, too. Rightly so. (laughs) Well, this causes Annie and Steve to fight, and they hang up on each other. Annie then goes back to work, and the phone rings again, but thinking it's just Steve, she lets the answering machine get it, but this time it's the gallery calling, and of course they say that they're just checking up on her, and, uh, you know, they've been worried about her and the family. They're keeping her in their thoughts and prayers, Uh, but they also wanted to say that if they need to postpone the show, that's perfectly fine. Uh, They just want to do what's best. Uh... But apparently the pressure of everything going on at home, plus trying to get ready for the show, is just too much for Annie. And she loses it, punching her miniature pieces that she's been working on to teeny tiny miniature smithereens. Yeah, things uh, don't seem very calm right now. (laughs) She's going to need that extension, I I, I think. (laughs) Possibly indefinitely. Yeah, something... uh needs to give here Annie's not doing well (laughs) (laughs) she is she is not uh but but who hasn't been there who hasn't smashed a a tiny miniature into many smithereens oh yeah I I smash smithereens all the time I've broken so many hairbrushes 
For some reason, as a teenager, my frustration would always come out when I was doing my hair. The eighties was rough for hair, and uh, it was the, it would tend to be my straw that broke the camel's back. You know, you're already having a bad day. Yeah, yeah. Goodbye, well, hairbrush. Good to know. I'll keep my hand up. <laughs> hairbrush just away from you. <laughs> I wear a lot of hats now. I've moved past it. Uh, well, by the way, this was our Hitchcock moment. Uh, because that voice we hear on the answering machine, that is Ari Oster himself. Oh, really? Yeah. That's really cool. Well, Steve arrives back home with Peter, complaining about a smell in the house, and goes upstairs to check on Annie. We can now see the full extent of Annie's breakdown, and she has smashed nearly every single piece she was working on. Peter then notices one of the pieces that's still somewhat intact is the miniature of their house, including Peter's bedroom, which has a miniature of Peter laid out on the bed, minus his head. Hmm. Hmm. Suspicious. <laughs> well, that night, Steve has resigned to sleeping on the couch, and he takes a couple of sleeping pills to help him do so, uh, and then he takes a third. So he's he's out for the night. Yeah. Yeah. Don't ask Papa for help. Uh, Papa's sleeping it off. <laughs> Papa's going nighty night for many hours. <laughs> Papa going to dream town. <laughs> Papa taking the express. <laughs> well, next we see Annie upstairs who can hear scribbling coming from Charlie's room. She goes down the hall and sees Charlie's journal on her bed and something unseen is drawing in the book and turning the pages. We then cut to Peter's room, who's trying to sleep, but hears Charlie's clicking again. He opens his eyes to see Charlie standing in the corner. She tilts her head down and it falls off, turning into a ball as it hits the floor and rolls toward Peter's bed. We see the family dog standing in the doorway, growling, refusing to come in. And then someone grabs Peter's head from behind and tries to pull him backwards until the door slams in the poor doggy's face. This gets Annie's attention, who goes running into his room to check on him. Peter blames Annie, saying, why are you trying to pull on my head? But Annie assures him that she just came into the room and hadn't touched him yet. Peter says he saw Charlie in the corner and she wants to know where he saw her. She tells Peter not to tell Dad what just happened and that she doesn't know what's going on, but she knows she's the only one that can fix it. It is becoming more and more evident that Annie is slipping mm -hmm. into madness. Yeah. We next see Charlie's journal lying on her bed again and we can see what has been scribbled on the pages Every page appears to be covered in drawings of Peter crying. The pages continue flipping until we get to the last page, which shows Peter crying and screaming. Annie picks up the journal and takes it downstairs and throws it into the fire. The journal begins to burn, but so does the sleeve of Annie's robe. So she takes that to mean that as long as the journal burns, so does she. So she immediately pulls the journal out of the fire and puts it out. The next morning, Peter leaves for school and Annie heads to Joan's apartment. She pounds on Joan's door, but Joan isn't answering. 
We can see inside Joan's apartment, and there's all kinds of ritualistic crap laying around, including a shrine with that same symbol on Annie and her mother's necklace, a picture of Peter in the middle of a triangle, and one of Charlie's Frankenstein toys. Uh, oh, and there are several severed heads from tiny animals. Uh, just the heads. Annie then looks down at Joan's welcome mat, that pretty personalized one, and this reminds her of something. Well, next we see Peter sitting alone outside having lunch at school when he begins to hear a woman calling his name. He looks out across the street and sees Joan. She's yelling at Peter, saying, Peter, I expel you. Zatany, <laughs> Dagdany, a paragon. Peter, get out. As far as I can tell, these words are just movie words. I, I can find no other reference. If you look them up, it just talks about hereditary. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the point is, this is weird. Yeah, I. he's like kind of looking around for a second, and that would definitely be me. I'd be like, does anybody, is anybody else? Because. <laughs> Chris, I'm... is that for you? <laughs> Isn't that your mom? Does she drive that car? <laughs> Yeah, that would be A, embarrassing, uh, B, scary. Yeah, so so what is the deal here? Back in her apartment, she had this picture of him uh, in the middle of this triangle, and now she's, like, yelling at him, tell him to get out. She expels him what, from school? You know, what, too many tardies? What's up? <laughs> Does she work here? I don't know what's it's happening. It's a plot twist. We didn't see this coming. <laughs> Turns out she's the principal. <laughs> Peter's in big trouble now. <laughs> Well, we see Annie return home and go straight up to the attic where her studio is, where she has those boxes of stuff that belong to her mother. In the boxes, she goes through and finds those fancy doormats. And we see that she has made one for each of the family members, uh, or at least the female ones. She then finds a book on invocations. She also finds a marked and highlighted section about King Payman. And in order to invoke him, you must complete the ritual and lock him inside an ordained host. If you can successfully summon Payman, you will be considered his conqueror and will receive untold riches. So the plot thickens. We're getting into some weird stuff, but this, I'm still here for the ride. I, I am too. I'm, I'm interested to see where this is going. I, I was thinking paranormal uh, I was thinking this was going to be a movie where we're just wondering if the mom is slipping into craziness. I'm still not sure. Is this really happening? <laughs> Seems weird. Something fishy's going on here. Well, Annie looks through some of her mother's photo albums and realizes there are several photos that have Joan in them. That's right. The same Joan Annie has been talking to. It turns out her and Joan's meeting wasn't by chance and she knew Annie and her mother all along. And it looks like they're in some sort of cult together. Well, next we see Peter back at school walking through the halls when that reflective light returns. And he can see his teacher down at the end of a hall beckoning him through a glass door. We then cut to Steve at work typing an email to a colleague about Annie's emotional state when he receives an email from the cemetery about Annie's mother's desecrated grave, including photos of the disturbed gravesite. 
Back at the family home, Annie is making her way up to the attic. Now, I keep saying her attic studio. I guess that was kind of a room in the house. It always kind of looked like the attic. Mm -hmm. But this is another attic that you have to actually, you know, pull down one of those ladders from the ceiling to go up to. Well, it's like all your old stored stuff and your holiday stuff and monsters and spiders, (laughs) criminals dead mothers you know whatever whatever Whatever. yeah yeah uh when she opens the door in the ceiling a bunch of flies come flying out when she gets up there the place is swarming with flies and she has to cover her mouth and nose to avoid the stench in the room remember earlier on in a scene we see steve and peter return home and steve was complaining about a smell in the house Mm -hmm. Well, she looks in the corner and finds the decapitated body of her mother with that same symbol painted above her on the wall. So that desecrated grave, what happened? Someone dug up Mama and put her in the attic. Ruh-roh. That's not where she goes. (laughs) We'll put this here. Somebody misplaced Mama. Did we not pay the bill at the cemetery? (laughs) Do they just return these things? I don't know how this works. (laughs) You didn't pay your rent. (laughs) (laughs) Been evicted. (laughs) Well, back at school, Peter is in class when he starts to hear that clicking noise again. He looks all around but can't figure out where the noise is coming from. Then his face goes blank and his arm shoots up into the air. The teacher thinks he has a question, but when he gets a look at Peter's face, he realizes that something is terribly wrong. We can now see Peter's face, and it looks like he's having a stroke. His face is blood red and frozen, and his eyes roll back, and they're bloodshot, and it's disturbing. And all of a sudden, he slams his face down into the desk. His head shoots back up and his class is in shock and screaming and backing away from him when he slams his face back down into the desk again, breaking his nose and bloodying his face. He then jumps up and starts screaming, falling back onto the ground. The rest of the class has now completely backed away from him and some people are even filming the entire thing. (laughs) Such just a perfect, typical teen moment. This Mm -hmm. horrifying thing is happening and someone is making sure they're catching the whole thing on video yeah yeah i would definitely be in the party of freaking out oh for sure (laughs) now we already know that alex wolf is a method actor Uh, but for this scene he was willing to take it a bit too far in an interview wolf explains that he wanted to actually break his own nose for the scene where he slams his head into the desk oh So uh, Ari Aster respectfully declined that offer and told Woof they'd give him a soft cushion desk for the scene. But when it was time for the scene to be shot, Woof slammed his head into the desk, only discovered that the top was foam and the bottom was hard, causing him to actually dislocate his jaw, uh, which is a previous injury that he had. Oh, no. But he offered to break his own nose. Yeah, that's uh, pretty intense. Too much dedication. (laughs) This is where we maybe tone it down a little bit. (laughs) Maybe we take a vacation. (laughs) Well, back at the family home, the school is trying to reach Annie, 
but she's outside standing in the rain under Charlie's treehouse. The school manages to get a hold of Steve at work, who then goes to pick up Peter. The two arrive home to a hysterical Annie who tries to tell Steve that her mother's dead body is in the attic. While Steve goes up to check, Annie goes downstairs to get ready to start a fire in the fireplace. She then comes back and explains to Steve everything that she's found out about the symbol, about Joan, about the cult. But Steve thinks that this is all Annie's doing. That all those times that she pretended to be going to the movies, she was really out there digging up her mother's grave and bringing it back here to make flies. But Annie <laughs> insists that she's not the one that's behind everything and that Peter's life is in danger. But she does somehow understand that this is her fault and she wants to stop it. She believes that somehow everything is connected to Charlie's journal and she feels like if they could just burn the journal, then everything would be fine and Peter would be safe. But she can't burn the journal because it catches her on fire. So she makes her way to the fireplace and begs Steve to throw the book in. He has to be the one to burn it. She truly believes she's going to burn if he throws that book in, but she's willing to make this sacrifice for her family if it will keep them safe. So Steve takes the book, but he refuses to burn it, telling Annie that she's sick and needs help. So she grabs the book from him and throws it in the fire. But instead of Annie going up in flames, Steve becomes his own blazing bonfire. Annie looks on horrified for a moment, but then her face goes blank, and we can tell something has changed. Yeah, pretty immediately. Well, next we see Peter in his room wake up. He turns over to see a light on in Charlie's treehouse. And this is one of those moments that's worth a second viewing, because if you didn't catch it the first time, if you look very closely in the corner of the room behind Peter, up toward the ceiling, you can see someone is there. Now, I don't know if I would have seen it if you didn't give me a heads up beforehand. <laughs> yeah, because I didn't see it on my first watch through. It wasn't until watching it the second time. And I really don't know how I saw it either because the movie's dark, obviously. Um, but I was uh, watching it on my iPad, so the screen was a little bit smaller. And I saw it, and then I definitely, like, paused it and, you know, took it back a little bit. And I was like, did I, did I see that? And then I played it again, <laughs> and I was like, oh, immediately I got shivers. And, yeah, I, I had said i was like i gave, I think i gave you like the timestamp, and i was like this is scary <laughs> <laughs> well peter then turns and calls out for his mother but she doesn't answer we then see something skitter across the wall behind him and exit the room yeah that was peter's mom i'm uncomfortable and i, I would like to leave hate it <laughs> people don't walk on walls like spiders no not usually i hate it so much well, Peter gets up and heads to his parents' room, calling for them as he goes. He hears a loud noise from somewhere in the house and goes to investigate. He makes his way downstairs, where he discovers the charred remains of his father. He moves closer to his father's body, and we can see behind him on the ceiling, clinging to the rafters, is his mother. He then hears a creaking behind him, and he turns around to see a strange naked man standing in the doorway to the kitchen, grinning at Peter like a Cheshire cat. That's not Mom. 
What did we say about the grinning? There's too much grinning in this movie. <laughs> well, he hears another noise that draws his attention to the ceiling where his mother used to be hanging out. She's totally gone now. And just as we're wondering where our new spider woman has gone, she pops out of the opposite corner from Peter and scares the hell out of him and us, sending Peter running back upstairs as we're left screaming, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> Peter runs up into the attic and manages to get the door closed before his mother can follow him up. He gets the door locked and is screaming for his mother to stop, who is now banging on the door. He continues to plead with her, saying, Mommy, please stop. I'm so sorry. But his begging is falling on deaf ears as we now see on the other side of the door and Annie is somehow hanging upside down, attached to the door like a fly, and is repeatedly and rapidly banging her head against the door. It's one of the most unsettling images I've seen in a movie in a long time. It really is. I hate it so much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're really getting into that time where this movie is just going off. It's bananas. Yeah. Uh, things have just turned on a dime, and at this point... Things haven't really set in in your mind, so there is a lot of chaos and confusion. There are a lot of things that are happening all at once. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like we talked up front, this movie is going to take a minute to settle in your brain. So it's, it's a rapid fire situation and it's a lot to keep up with. Yeah. Well, we switch back to Peter still calling out to his mommy when the banging subtly stops. Peter takes a moment to catch his breath, and for the first time, he looks around the attic. He sees the room is filled with flies and can see candles have been lit all around the room. However, the spot where Annie found her mother's decapitated body is now empty, although we can see an outline in the dust where the body had been. And a school portrait of Peter is now lying on the floor with the eyes torn out. Peter turns from his discovery and, convinced he's trapped in a nightmare, begins slapping himself in the face, demanding he wake up, until he begins to hear a noise that is described by the closed captions as flesh-tearing and squelching. <laughs> it's not a good time. I now hate the word squelching. Oh, I hated it before. <laughs> It's, oh God, this is, okay, here we go. <laughs> so Peter slowly lifts his head, horrified to see his mother suspended in midair up toward the ceiling, cutting her own head off with piano wire. Oh, don't like it. <laughs> she does this slowly at first, back and forth, as blood spurts out with each jagged slice all the while making direct eye contact with Peter as the cutting picks up speed faster and faster, back and forth, back and forth, until a bell dings, I guess our horror souffle is done baking, I don't know what the dinging was, drawing Peter's attention to a corner of the room where we see three more naked people are, are now just standing there. When did they get here? Who are these dudes? Uh, well, apparently this is the old man's saggy ball sack that broke the camel's back, causing Peter to totally flip the fuck out and jump out the window of the attic, landing face first in the shrubbery two stories below. And as the camera zooms in to Peter's motionless body, 
we can still hear Annie sawing off her head back up in the attic until she completes the job and we hear her noggin hit the floor with a wet thud. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It's so effective. You never see a thing. No. All you have is your brain, and I don't like what my brain came up with. Yeah. My brain's a bad place, so that's all I need, really. <laughs> it's scary in there. <laughs> we then see a light slowly drift down from above Peter and enter his unconscious body. Peter slowly lifts his head just in time to see his mother's now headless body float up into Charlie's treehouse. Peter stands up and we see he has adopted Charlie's clicking tick. He begins to walk to Charlie's treehouse and in the background we are shown the family dog is dead. At least I think it's dead. It's lying in the grass outside, not moving. I don't re even remember if I mentioned there was a family dog. That's how insignificant to the story the dog was. <laughs> yeah, it's like briefly, I remember that thinking that when I watched it the second time because I didn't remember it from the first walk, th from yeah. the first watch through. Me too. And yeah, at the beginning, they kind of like s say hi to him as they're like coming through the door. Mm -hmm. And that's like, like really it. Like we never yeah. see him walking through the house. I mean, there's stuff happening in this house all the time. You would think the dog would be like, hey. Oh, there was that one time he was like barking at, that's right. at uh, Peter's door. True. Yeah. Uh, so there you go. Uh, we, we don't know how or why the dog is dead. It just appears to be dead. So I thought I should mention it. Sorry. R.I.P. dog. Uh, on his slow walk down the driveway to the treehouse, Peter passes more naked old people. He ascends the ladder and enters the treehouse, only to be greeted by more naked people. So many. Uh, they are bowing in penance pose on the ground, except one of them isn't naked. We realize it's Joan, and for some reason she gets to wear a robe. Uh, once in the treehouse, Peter turns around to see a statue mocking Christ uh, that has been built with a life-size wooden posable artist mannequin with that symbol from his mother's and grandmother's necklaces carved into the chest and Charlie's severed head placed on top wearing a crown. Down at the feet of Jesus Charlie are the decapitated bodies of Annie and her mother, also in a bowing penance pose. Peter continues looking around the room and sees a photo of his grandmother hanging up in a frame with the words Queen Lee engraved on it. Joan then crosses the room, removes the crown from Charlie's decapitated head, and places it on Peter. She then tells him not to worry but calls him Charlie. She tells Charlie slash Peter that they are now Payman, one of the eight kings of hell. They have summoned him, corrected his first female body, and given him now this healthy male host. She goes on to say, We reject the Trinity and pray devoutly to you. In return, we expect honor, wealth, and good familiars. Bind all men to our will, as we have bound ourselves for now and ever to yours. All the followers then chant, Hail Payman! Hail Payman! Hail Payman! We then see a wide-angle overview shot of the treehouse and can see everyone bowing to Charlie slash Peter slash Payman, and it looks like a miniature twisted evil nativity scene. 
Cut to black and roll credits over Joni Mitchell's Both Sides Now. So again, there's that both sides, seeing both sides kind of now uh, at the end there, you know, Peter can understand uh, what really was driving his mom crazy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, uh, There we go. That's your movie. We didn't lie. Things got nuts there at the end. Yeah. It, it seemed like they shoved a whole lot of information into our brains <laughs> in a very short amount of time. Yeah. It's definitely one of those movies that, uh, like I said earlier, is a slow burn. But I definitely think there's a lot of payoff. I mean, even if, you know, like you said earlier, if, if this movie's not the type that you're into because you just, you know, you just want to take your horror at face value, that's that's... It's totally okay. But I think you can still do that with this movie. I mean, simply for the acting alone, the acting's so well done. And, you know, you can take this story with a pretty baseline value and then you can take it very deep. And uh, I like movies like that. And I like the fact that there is just so much going on with this movie. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I never feel like overwhelmed with this movie. You know what I mean? Like, it's not okay, what, what the fuck just happened? You know, like it, it, it leads you there, um, in a gradual way. And then I think the end, yes, it's very crazy. And yes, there is a lot to unpack once the movie's done. I still think it's like, I think if it would have gone off any longer, then you would start losing your viewers. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Uh, so I, I think it's good the way they ended it, the way they did, uh, Granted, yes, it is. It is a lot to shove into your eye holes <laughs> all at one time. <laughs> yeah. So, so let's talk a little bit about that ending. So, let's kind of break it down. At, at least, what is my understanding of of what what happened here? Uh, so, basically, what was going on is Mom Queen Lee was the head of this cult. She was their leader. And believe that if they could summon this payman, this eighth king of hell, whatever the heck he is, like the book said, if they can conquer him, then they get all these untold riches. So th- this is basically all just for fame and fortune. Mm-hmm. So in order to do that, they have to uh, make an offering of a host. And that was initially supposed to be Peter. But if you remember back when Annie visits the support group for the first time, she says that when Peter was born, her and her mother weren't speaking. So she kept Peter from her. Mm -hmm. So she never had the opportunity to do this ritual and put this payment into uh, Peter where he was supposed to go. Yeah. So then along comes Charlie. Charlie's born. And so now grandma's got to take what she can get and and that's where this really close creepy relationship happens with Charlie and Grandma is Grandma ends up dedicating Charlie as the host for uh Paymon and that ticket that tick that she had is actually Payment's tick that is his signal kind of mm-hmm. so when you hear that it doesn't signal that Charlie's around. It signals that Payman is around. Mm-hmm. So when Charlie is accidentally killed, now we've got to try and transfer this spirit from Payman into Peter. That's what they've wanted all along is to somehow make this transfer. Yeah. So s- somehow they curse that 
uh, telephone pole. They knew that accident was going to happen. They they arranged for that to happen. Basically, somehow the fates they've they've conjured that into being, and so now it uh, releases Payman from Charlie, and now they got to get him into Peter. So it's all about getting to Peter. Basically, if you if you caught some more of the notes. Uh, that you see very quickly when Annie is going through her mother's things uh, that she had in those boxes. Uh, you can kind of see that in order for uh, payment to enter a host, the host has to relinquish it willingly. Payment can't just come in and take you over. You have to say, yep, come on in. You are allowed. So basically you have to give up all hope which which kind of was the idea by trying to make Peter go nuts and he having him be the one responsible for Charlie's death and now by seeing his dead father uh, that, you know, Peter's just going to give up. Uh, but what happened was that's actually the moment when Annie snaps because remember she freaks out when she sees uh, Steve burst into flames when they bur- burn Charlie's journal. Mm-hmm. But then you see Annie's face change. Like her face goes blank because at that moment she just gave up on life. That was too much. Now her husband's dead. Yeah. You know, to her, her whole family's dead. She considers kind of Peter dead because he's the one responsible for Charlie's death. So she has now lost all hope. Here's an empty vessel. Payman jumps in. That's why her face changes. But now, but that's not where he wants to be. (laughs) Uh, so that's why he st- she starts chasing Peter and uh, she's after him and is doing her head banging on the ceiling and cuts her own head off. So when Charlie jumps out the window and he is unconscious, uh, he can't dissuade Payman from entering him. So that's when we see that light enter Peter. And so now Payman is finally in his final host and he climbs and he course he's crowned by by joan who gives the speech yep we won our riches we win hooray (laughs) movie over so there you go (laughs) i hope that explained something you don't even watch it you just got the whole thing uh i'm sure ari if you're listening uh i think we did it justice i really think (laughs) we summed it up best Uh, consider this your director's cut my man yeah if you need help in the future Uh, you know, with those deep stories, let us know. Uh, you know, actually, I have a fun little fact based on that. Ari has said he already has 10 other scripts completely written, finalized. He's ready to go. I'm excited to see what else he brings to the table. I am too. And uh, like I said, we, we can break him down, obviously. We're very talented here at the Dead Zone. <laughs> so keep them coming because we are here to talk about all of them. All right, well, speaking of talking about, we got some prompts to get to. Are you ready for those? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, what do you have for your popcorn spiller? Uh, I if, if anybody has anything else in this spot, I need you to get out right now because it should obviously be Charlie's death scene. Oh, uh, I'll be leaving. Okay. <laughs> uh, I have Annie banging her head on the attic door. It is seriously such, I don't know what it is that is so disturbing to me about it. Mm-hmm. I just, every time I see it, it it gets me. It is just like a creepy crawly thing to me. Mm-hmm. I, I don't like it. Yeah, yeah. It, it It's obviously Charlie's scene for many reasons, but it, it really is for me just that moment of complete and utter shock. Yeah. And I really was such a... Uh, 
and this is just for lack of better words, a victim of the advertising of thinking that, you know, uh, Millie was going to be in the movie far more than she was. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, whenever uh, her death occurred so early on in the movie, I was just like, what? <laughs> what is this movie about then? Like, where yeah. do we go from here? <laughs> and then not only that, we just watched this crazy ass scene unfold and happen right in front of our eyes. And it's just, it's shocked. I think no matter how many times you watch this movie, it's just crazy. So yeah, that's, that's that moment for me that I just, any popcorn I had in my bucket is now thrown out of it in the room all over the place out of shock. Well, I think that's the thing for me was Charlie's death was more shock than it was uh, a scare or kind of thing. So uh, this was definitely one of those popcorn thrower because I wanted to throw it to make her stop (laughs) kind of thing. Yeah. So who was your scene stealer for this movie? It's always going to be Tony Collette. Same. Uh, And actually, I only put Tony Collette because I really thought uh, that you were going to go with Millie. Yeah, and I think originally it was going to be, but I like I said, it was my watch through that I'm watching this dinner scene, and I really just had this moment of utter respect just for that art of acting, and, and again, just how Tony landed it in this movie that I just was like, absolutely, every time she's in anything, she steals it. I don't care. Yeah. She's phenomenal. Yeah. She's absolutely amazing. Uh, but yeah, honorable mention. I don't think I we've touted her abilities enough during this movie. Millie Shapiro did absolutely fantastic. Amazing. Just such a good job of just that deadpan kind of, it, you know, <laughs> it makes me think of the kid who was in the remake of The Omen, how he did deadpan, but it just made him look bored. Yeah. Millie was able to do deadpan and make it creepy as hell. Yeah, 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 for sure. She was phenomenal. Yeah. So there you go. There you go. What about what do you have for your gorgasm? For me, I had Annie sawing her squelchy neck in the attic. That's a good one. Yeah, yeah. It it was easily, every time uh, the sound just keeps going, Mm -hmm. I immediately just want to like take my ears off. Yeah. And I feel if a scene is, is able to do that just through auditory noises, it's, that's, that's orgasmic. Yeah. It it was a phenomenal scene. That's a really good one. So what about for you? Uh, I had to go with Charlie's severed head only because it's just kind of a slap in the face. Mm -hmm. You aren't expecting it to just all of a sudden switch back and it's just right there and it's covered in flies and it is very realistic and it just kind of took me by surprise uh uh, i thought it was very well done effect Mm -hmm. so then that leads us into memorable mortality here's where i had charlie's death yeah i mean it's the big one you cannot forget it once it happens and you have that holy shit moment it's that's what you think of when you think of this movie is that damn decapitation mm-hmm, scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was exactly the same answer for me. It just uh, can't escape it from this movie. It is what it is. It's it's completely uh, not even the whole part of the movie, but it's literally the driving, breaking force of this movie. This scene has to happen to create this movie mm-hmm. to create the madness that ensues, and so. Yeah, there's there's no way that 
this this mortality can can not be remembered for that mere reason alone but then you add on the fact that it was just so damn well done and so damn shocking every time it just it's amazing yeah yeah uh i do know another thing that a lot of people had difficulty with with this movie was why the hell would you send your child out into the world who had a severe allergy to nuts and not let them carry an EpiPen. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, a lot of people were very frustrated by that. Yeah. Uh, I have no answer. I, I agree. That seems... Um, Important. Unsafe. <laughs> <laughs> Irresponsible. That's the word I'm looking for. <laughs> All right. Well, of course, that brings us to the big question. Do we put it in the vault or leave it in the dead zone? Uh, vault for me. It was always going to be Vault. <laughs> yeah. It was never not going to be Vault. This movie is creepy as shit. Uh, it is terrifying. It is a wild, crazy ride. Performances are phenomenal. It's 100% Vault. Yeah. It's just so well done. I think it's a really great example of modern day horror, you know, uh, in contrast to, to the cheesy, campy slashers that yes d does does the gore and does it well and and believe me those are always always going to be a favorite i do like the evolution of of the horror genre that now it can become a lot more psych psychological and still be just as fucking terrifying oh yeah absolutely uh plus this is just it's a it's a beautiful film it's very well done mm -hmm. uh and so uh that's just something i can appreciate as well and again, I look forward to seeing what more Ari has to bring us in the future. For sure. I'm, I'm so excited. I was excited for this movie. I'm so excited for the upcoming series. Just, uh, I feel like A24 horror movies, there's, there's something special about them. And I'm excited to dive into more of that. Well, that's going to do it for us. Episode 23 is... In the Can. In the Can. Thank you so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Dead Zone Drive-In on your favorite listening platform. And if you're looking for a way to support us, we would be so grateful if you would leave a rating and or review. And if you screenshot that review and send it to us, we're going to send you your very own Dead Zone Drive-In sticker for free. That's no money's honey. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can email us at deadzonedrivein at gmail.com. And if you're wanting to reach us by snail mail, our address is P.O. Box 12665, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma 73157. We'll be sure to pick it up while we're driving through town. Next, be sure to cruise down to our show notes where you'll find a link to our socials and our Facebook group. And lastly, be sure to seek us out next week as we'll be watching A24's supernatural horror film from 2015, The Witch. If you want to check out that trailer, don't worry, we've got you. That link is also down in the show notes. And of course, a big thank you to our house band Slime and the Maggot Boob for playing Tool Stink Fist. That's it. No joke. I just really fucking love that song. <laughs> Thanks, guys. You really nailed it. And remember, if you're looking for the Dead Zone and want to join us for a weekend screening, if you've listened to this episode in its entirety, you'll have been provided with all the information you need. Don't forget your tickets. Good night, folks, and please... Buckle up. We'll be waiting for you. Yeah, this is uh, it's similar to like, you know, the conjuring where the conjuring made crapping. Uh, crapping. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to say clapping creepy. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
one instead. <laughs> they made crapping. I don't remember that part of the country. Oh, you didn't watch that? <laughs> that was the Not bonus the part features. Where he made crapping. <laughs> Ooh, shit in the basement. <laughs> this is why we boarded it up. People wouldn't stop shitting in the basement. <laughs> I just imagine, like, they're bringing Ed and Lorraine there. They're like, it's haunted. <laughs> and they walk down there like, no, it, there's just shit everywhere. <laughs> it's not haunted. <laughs> this is just gross. <laughs> Y'all nasty. Clean your shit up. <laughs> Haunted my ass. Let's get out of here. <laughs> oh, God. And now, folks, it's time to say goodnight. We sincerely appreciate your patronage and hope we've succeeded in bringing you an enjoyable evening of entertainment. Please drive home carefully and come back again soon. Good night. Thanks.